So we turn now to our scripture reading for the morning. And today we're going to continue the sermon series we started last week, our series we're calling it Now for Something Completely Different. Throughout this series, we are exploring, we are exploring what it is that makes humor humorous. What is it that makes a joke funny? And we're discovering that many of the things that makes humor humor uh, are found also in the parables of Jesus. Last week we heard about the, this, this researcher, Richard Wiseman. We heard about this great big study that he did where he identified three elements of humor, three things that tend to make a joke really funny. And last week I told you that each of the three elements of humor, each of the three elements of comedy discovered by Richard Wiseman can also be found in the parables of Jesus. And when Jesus is teaching people, he often tells these little stories, these, these, uh, these, these parables that are meant to help people understand how God works among us, how God's kingdom comes to us in this world. We're going to hear just a very short little parable again this morning. Listen now, listen now to these words of Jesus from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, when Sven and Ole came over from the old country, they got jobs working in construction. One day they were putting siding on a house. Sven was up the ladder and Ole was working down below. And suddenly Ole felt a ping, ping, ping as something started bouncing off of his head. So he looked up the ladder and he saw, he saw Sven up there at the top of the ladder. And Sven was pulling nails out of a bag and he was tossing them down one by one. Ole said, holy wah, Sven, what are you doing up there? And Sven, he said, well, Ole, it's like this. He said, there's a problem with these nails. He says, some of them have got the pointy bit at the wrong end. <laughs> Ole looked up the ladder and he said, oh, my goodness, Sven. He said, you knucklehead, those nails are for working on the other side of the house. <laughs> One day, Ole showed up at work late. He had heavy bandages on both ears. His boss said, my goodness, Ole, what happened to you? And Ole said, well, it's like this. I was doing my ironing. I was ironing my pants and the phone rang. And instead of answering the phone, I answered the iron. His boss said, well, that explains one ear. What happened to the other ear? And Ole said, well, I had to call the doctor, didn't I? I do, I do love these jokes about Sven and Ole. If you've been around Court Street for a while, you know that if I tell a joke at the beginning of a sermon on a Sunday morning, there's a good chance it's going to involve our friends Sven and Ole. There's a reason for that, I think. The reason is probably that I grew up in, in the UP. I grew up surrounded by people who talk like Sven and Ole, and so these jokes, they give me a sort of a nostalgic feeling. They remind me of the people in my neighborhood growing up back there in the UP. I do, I do love these jokes, and you know if you've been around Court Street for a while, and if I tell a joke on a Sunday morning, there's a good chance it's going to involve our friends, our friends Sven and Ole. What you don't know is that every time I tell one of those jokes, I feel just a little bit of a twinge of conscience. Because I know that these jokes have got just a little bit of a dark side to them. So Sven and Ole jokes started to show up in the late 1800s. And there was a reason that these jokes began to appear at that moment in time. Back in the 1800s, there were two big waves of Scandinavian immigration to the upper Midwest in, in America. The first big wave of immigration from places like Sweden happened in the 
1820s and the 1830s. And then there was sort of a 50-year pause when not very many people came over from places like Sweden and Norway. And then again, about 50 years later, in the 1880s and the 1890s, there was another great big wave of Scandinavian immigration. And so what happened in the late 1800s was you had all of these second and third generation immigrants who had become very American in their way of living, American in their way of thinking, American in their way of speaking, and suddenly their communities were flooded with these people who were just off the boat, these people who were doing whatever menial jobs they could find, these people who were struggling to adjust to life in America, people who were struggling to learn the language, and these jokes, Sven and only jokes, were a way for more established generations to poke fun at, to look down on, to laugh at these fresh off the boat immigrants. It was a way of looking at them and saying, boy, aren't they foolish? Aren't they silly? Don't they have a hard time speaking the language? Isn't it a good thing our parents and our grandparents were more clever than they are? Isn't it a good thing that we figured all this stuff out, that we learned how to speak the language? We must be smarter than they are. That's why we live in nice houses while they live in shacks. That's why we work in offices while they're up on ladders. These jokes, when they started, they were a way for more established American communities to laugh at and to look down upon immigrants who were fresh off the boat. And this didn't just happen with, with Sweden and Norwegian, Swedish and Norwegian immigrants. Anywhere you had a big wave of immigration, you find these same jokes. The jokes, the stories remain the same, it's just the names that change. So in parts of the UP, where you have more Finns than you have Swedes, you, you find not Sven and Oli jokes, but instead they tell jokes about two guys called Eno and Toivo. In other parts of the country where there were great big waves of Irish immigration, they tell stories about two guys named Pat and Mike. Uh, jokes about Polish people have a particularly dark history. A hundred years ago in Germany, jokes about Polish people were the single most popular form of humor. People would love to tell jokes in Germany a hundred years ago about how foolish Polish people are, about how filthy they were, about how lazy they were. And these jokes, these dehumanizing jokes and other jokes like them created a culture that made it that much easier for the Nazi regime to eventually invade Poland and annihilate entire minority populations. These jokes have got a little bit of a dark side to them, which is why I always feel that that little bit of a twinge of conscience whenever I tell a Sven and Joe joke. These jokes have always been about looking down upon people, laughing at people, making people look foolish. And of course, that's the reason why we think they're funny. As he was studying humor, as he looked at the tens of thousands of jokes that, that were involved in his study, the millions of responses that he got from all around the world, Richard Wiseman discovered that one of the most consistent elements of humor, one of the things that makes for us, that makes for a funny joke, is that somebody in the joke looks foolish. Somebody in the joke does something dumb. We love the joke where Oli puts the iron on the other ear because he's got to call the doctor. We love to laugh at Oli in that moment. Why do we love to laugh at Oli in that moment? Because in that moment, we feel pretty good about ourselves. You say, I would never do that. I am not that foolish. I might not have a lot going on for me, but at least I'm smarter than Oli. We feel good about ourselves when we hear jokes about other people doing foolish things. When we hear a joke like that, researchers have discovered our brains release a, a chemical called serotonin. Now, last week we talked about dopamine, which is, which is another chemical our brains produce when we listen to a joke. Dopamine is what scientists call the happy chemical. It's the chemical that makes us smile and laugh when we hear a joke. Serotonin is what scientists call the feel-good chemical. 
When we listen to a joke, like a spent and only joke, we, we get a burst of serotonin in our brains and we feel in that moment, we feel good about ourselves. We feel good about our world. We feel good about our lives. We feel good because at least I got more going for me than Sven and Oldie do. We love, we love jokes that let us look down on other people and laugh at other people. And right now, maybe you're thinking, hold on a minute, Pastor, because just a minute ago, you told us that all of the elements of humor identified by Richard Wiseman can also be found in the parables of Jesus. And this doesn't sound very much like Jesus. It is hard to imagine Jesus telling jokes about people, encouraging people to look down on other people and to laugh at other people. And it's true. It is hard to imagine Jesus using this form of humor in the way that you and I do. But of course, that's the key to understanding what is going on in many of the parables of Jesus. Jesus uses this form of humor. He just doesn't use it in the same way that you and I do. So comedians have got a term, they've got an expression for the way in which we typically use this form of humor in American culture. Comedians talk about what we like to do in our jokes here in American culture is they call it punching down. And punching down is what happens when people make jokes about somebody who is below them on the social ladder. Right? Punching down is why in American culture we have so many instances of, of uh, people making jokes about established American communities, making jokes about immigrants just after they got off the boat. It's why men tell jokes about women. It's why white people tell jokes about minority communities. It's why rich people tell jokes about poor people. This is what comedians mean when they say punching down. Punching down means making fun of, looking down on people who are already downtrodden and oppressed. Comedians also have a word, an expression for what Jesus does in his parables. Comedians would say that in his parables, in the stories that he tells, instead of punching down, Jesus punches up. Punching up is what happens when you make the people who are doing the oppressing into the punchline. Punching up is what happens when you encourage people to laugh at and when you make people who are wealthy and powerful look foolish in the story and the joke that you're telling. This is what Jesus does in so many of his parables. In this morning's scripture reading, we have this story that Jesus tells. A man one day is out working in a field and suddenly he discovers a treasure that has been buried in the field. This happened back in the time of Jesus. Back in those days, if you had a, a treasure, if you had a lot of money and you wanted to keep it safe, one of the things that you would do is you would go and you would bury it in a field somewhere. And sometimes people didn't come back for those treasures. Sometimes they stayed underground for years, maybe even for decades, maybe even for centuries. This is what happens. One day a man is working in a field and suddenly he trips over this treasure, maybe a great big jar of, of silver coins. And now in this moment, the man who has discovered the treasure, he has a decision to make. He has a choice that he needs to make because the field does not belong to him. The field belongs to someone else. The field belongs to a person who is somewhere else. And here's where things get interesting. Because if we pay close attention to the parables of Jesus, if we pay careful attention to the stories that Jesus tells, we're going to discover that one of the characters who keeps showing up in the parables of Jesus over and over and over again is the character of the absentee landlord. Somebody who owns the land, somebody who makes money from the land, but is not connected to the land, does not know the land, does not work on the land, does not live on the land. And there is a reason why so many of the parables of Jesus have got this figure of the absentee landlord. Because this figure was familiar to people in that time from their lives and from their communities. In the time of Jesus, the land of the Jewish people had been conquered by the Roman Empire. 
And when the Romans conquered the land of the Jewish people, they seized vast tracts of the land. They took it away from the Jewish people. They took it away from God's people, the people to whom God had given the land. And then they took that land and they gave it to wealthy and well-connected Roman citizens. They gave it to wealthy and well-connected Roman officials. And those Roman citizens, those Roman officials, they then became the landlords. They became the masters. They became the overseers of the land. And in many cases, the very people whose land had been taken away then were forced to hire themselves out as day laborers working in the very fields that they had once owned, that their families had owned for generations. And so here we have this man who is working in the field one day and suddenly he discovers this treasure, maybe a treasure that had been buried by his grandparents or by his grandparents' grandparents. And now he has got a difficult decision to make because by law, by custom, by the ethics of the day, the responsible thing for him to do is to report what he's found. What he's supposed to do, according to the law, is take that treasure and hand it over to the landlord, hand it over to this already wealthy Roman person who oversees all of this land. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes home, he sells his house and all of his furniture, he sells his donkey, he sells everything except for the clothes on his back. And then he goes to the city. He goes to the place where the man who owns the field has got an office. He knocks on the door. He sits down in the office. He says, I want to make you an offer. I want to buy that field back from you. And you can imagine. Can't you imagine this wealthy Roman overseer, this wealthy Roman landlord looking down upon this man and driving a hard bargain, haggling and negotiating until this peasant farmer has agreed to pay far more for the land than the land is worth? Can't you? Just imagine this landlord laughing at the man as he leaves his office. Can't you imagine this landlord turning to his secretary and saying, you just watch six months from now, he's going to be starving and he's going to be right back here in my office and then I'm going to buy back that field for a fraction of what he just paid. These Jewish peasants, they don't understand the value of a dollar. They don't understand the value of a land. That's why we conquered them. That's why we're on the top and they're on the bottom. Can't you just imagine this landlord laughing at this foolish Jewish peasant farmer as he leaves the man's office. But of course, the landlord doesn't get to have the last laugh. The Jewish peasant farmer gets to have the last laugh because he hasn't just bought a field, he's bought a treasure. And with that treasure, he can buy more fields. He can buy his neighbor's fields. He can liberate his neighbor's fields and return them to his neighbors. He can transform his entire community with this treasure that he has found. It's the Jewish peasant farmer. It's the guy on the bottom who has been downtrodden and oppressed, who gets to have the last laugh in this story of Jesus. And he is not the only person who would have been laughing. Who else would have been laughing? The people, the farmers, the peasants, the downtrodden and oppressed people who came to hear Jesus preach. They would have been laughing as Jesus told this parable because they understood what was happening in this parable. They understood what this parable was really about. They would have been laughing at the foolish man who let a treasure slip through his fingers. And in that moment, they would have just for a moment, for the first time in a long time, they would have felt good about themselves. They would have felt clever. They would have felt resourceful. They would have felt worthy. They would have felt like God's people, like God's children. Again, the people who listened to Jesus tell this story, they understood the point that Jesus was making. When God's kingdom comes into this world, the world gets turned upside down so that the last are first and the first are last and the oppressed and the downtrodden are lifted up 
and the people who have spent their lives in mourning, they get to have the last laugh. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this promise that you have made to us in Jesus. That one day all creation will be turned upside down. That those who are mourning now will one day be laughing. That those who are hungry now will one day be filled. That one day every tear will be wiped away. Every injustice will be undone. And your kingdom of peace will come and fill all creation. God, we pray for that day to come. And we pray for you to give us the strength to hang on until it does. In Jesus we pray. Amen.